from Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico. Welcome. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Today, we take a look into male breast cancer with our new co-host, Kirby Lewis. We were also to be joined by Shante Randall, but this is a podcast about RNBC life, and so we shall never sugarcoat what really goes on. At the time of this interview recording a few weeks ago, Shante was experiencing extreme pain and nausea as a result of both her cancer and her treatment and was unable to join us. She is feeling so much better now, and we couldn't be happier. Also, on the day of this interview, what I will call the year 2020 effect came to play in full force. As we were about to record on a gorgeous sunny fall day, the power to my neighborhood went out without any warning. And so because our guests have very limited time and packed schedules, I got in my car and drove to our town hall, which has outside internet access and proceeded to do this interview outside. Our guests and Kirby just rolled with this crazy turn of events, and it is to their credit that we had such an important and thoughtful conversation. And while I was half expecting for frogs to start falling from the sky, because it's 2020 after all, we did get it done. We ask for your patience with the audio quality, of course, for this episode. So thank you so much. Okay, let's get on with the show. So breast cancer can strike anyone who has breast tissue, and that includes men. For too many years, men with breast cancer have felt isolated, alone, and without the same kind of community supports that women living with breast cancer have developed. While breast cancer occurs mainly in women, men can get breast cancer too, and today we will be talking with the advocates who work so hard to make sure that the needs of men with breast cancer are not forgotten. We have with us today Kate Keith, a nurse practitioner and mother of three, who is also the widow of Ryan Keith, who died in March of this year of MBC. Ryan was a charismatic, kind, and thoughtful advocate for men living with MBC, and he is missed by all who knew him. Kate will tell us more about Ryan and his advocacy work on this episode. Also with us is Michael Singer, a lead advocate of the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, which is a coalition of foundations and international male breast cancer survivors sharing their stories. Michael underwent a mastectomy in 2010 after discovering a cyst under his left nipple. He is a graduate of NBCC's Project Lead Program, has participated as a consumer reviewer for the DOD's Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program and with Dr. Susan Love's Research Army. As a result of Michael's lobbying efforts, New York State recognizes the third week of October as Male Breast Cancer Awareness Week. He is an early stage male breast cancer ally to all individuals living with MBC. Welcome, Kate. Welcome, Michael, for coming on to our MBC Life. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. So I thought we'd start with you, Kate. And first of all, we want to acknowledge how sorry we are that Ryan died and that we know October is such a difficult time for all family members and caregivers who have lost loved ones to NBC. So we appreciate you coming on the pod today to speak about Ryan, his experience with NBC, and to hear more about who he was and what you all learned as a result of living with this disease. So let's start maybe from the beginning. How did Ryan discover he had breast cancer? 
Well, it was October 2017, and um, Ryan had been really getting into CrossFit for a year, year and a half prior to October 2017. So he had come home from the gym and he was sore from lifting and he was in the shower and he was just kind of rubbing out his chest and he felt a lump um, on the right side of his chest near his areola. And, um, you know, he showed me and I'm actually a nurse practitioner. And I, my first thought was, oh, it's probably a cyst or something. He didn't like most at this, he was 41. Um, he had a GP who had then moved. And so he was kind of in between GPs. He didn't have a go-to doctor. So, um, took a couple of weeks. He got an appointment with a referral, somebody, a friend referral. And his general, the general practitioner said the same thing. Now at this point, we're like a month out with this, with no change. And so Ryan and I were a little bit more concerned at this point. And then he said, what put cold comfort or warm compresses. And Ryan had a, an intuition that something was not right. And he pushed for imaging studies and it was the attending radiologist the day that he had his mammogram and sonogram who said, um, who called him immediately and said, you need a biopsy within seven days. Was it an early stage breast cancer, I should say, or was it already metastatic? So it was, what happened was the surgeon did a core biopsy and a week later we found out that it was indeed cancer. And then he was in this, he was scheduled to have a mastectomy and the, we kind of went back and forth whether he should do a double or not. We were still in this, you know, every stage of cancer is really intense. So I don't at all want this to come out as insensitive or comparative. But when I look back at it now, if all he had to do was to have a mastectomy and then our lives resumed that we still would have been through a lot of processing and, but we were still in that point thinking, oh, this is just a surgery and then it's going to be over. Of course. So yeah. we like spent weeks about, do you do double, do you bub? And what does it mean if you only have one? And then the, what do you, how often do you have to come back to get mammograms? We spent all this time talking about it. He had the surgery January 2nd, 2018, and it was just like a bad movie. I was in a waiting room with some lame show on at the hospital all by myself. And the surgeon came in and said, lo and behold, it's all through his right axilla. He's going to need chemo and radiation. It's stage three. However, in hindsight, I believe it was de novo because he had a spot on his lung that we saw in a PET scan a week after surgery that it was hard to biopsy. So it was never biopsied. It went away with the initial round of chemo. Um, and then Three months after he finished radiation, so he had the bilateral mastectomy and the he had the lymphectomy. He had eight rounds of chemo over four months, and then he had 31 days of radiation. And three months later, he was diagnosed with metastatic cancer on a PET scan. Right. It was in his bones at that point. Right, right. Of course, of course. It's so hard to recount those days and those early days of diagnosis because you're in a state of shock, you're researching, you're trying to figure this all out. Is there any 
breast cancer at all in Ryan's family? No cancer history in his family. And all the genetic testing was negative. That also happens, that breast cancer just happens to people who have no record or history. And it's also something that needs to be studied and researched to figure out what's really going on and, and what really triggered it to happen to Ryan in Ryan's body. You know, you just mentioned that you have your three kids. How old are your kids now? Our daughter's 14. She just turned 14, August 31st. And uh, we have a son who's 10 and a daughter who is seven. Wow. That's really, uh, those are really uh, fun ages, but also challenging to be doing uh, distance learning right now. So I I know you have your hands full. It's a personal question and you don't have to answer anything, Katie. You can totally just say, you know, it's a little hard for me to talk about it. It's completely fine. But I'd love to hear from you how you learned to cope with Ryan's diagnosis maybe in the beginning and then take us through his metastatic breast cancer treatments and how you were feeling and coping at that time. Yeah, well, I don't think I ever learned to cope um, in a in a sweeping way, you know, that applied to every phase because each phase brought such different challenges and heartbreaks. I, um, I would say in the beginning, you know, it was just really focused on what we needed to do to, to get by and um, have Ryan decrease his workload and what it meant for our family, just almost scheduling wise. And then him transitioning from being healthy 41 year old who runs his own construction business to recovering from surgery and then going through the chemo and the radiation. So that was, uh, but what I have to say is cancer is, um, there's a lot of slow deaths along the way and, you know, change and death are, are similar in a way. So I'm not talking about the finality of your heart stopping, but it is a death when you're, you lived your life one way and then you have to change it and you look different and you, you know, your body works. So that's what I mean by slow deaths. There were a lot of these and they were very private because they were happening within our marriage or within our family, within the walls of our home. So there was this coping that was happening on the inside. And then there was the strategic, just how do you, how do you live your life family and yeah. Keep the wheels on the bus, as they say, while you're coping with these really difficult, emotional, existential questions. Yes. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of personal growth, a lot of growth together, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of lows and highs. It was very real, put it that way, and raw. Right. You know, I could take some little gauzy non-real right now. Thank you very much. And, and I'm going to interject if that's okay, Lisa. But Katie, I would imagine that you're probably still coping with it. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And I'm only, he died four months ago. So, um, and honestly, the last three to four months of Ryan's life were such a blur and such a different story and trajectory that I'm still processing that. Yeah. 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 For sure. Well, I, we want to, we'll, we'll go back to that in terms of treatment decisions and lessons learned. But I know that maybe earlier on after his diagnosis, he became a male NBC advocate. So 
What made him decide to do that? Well, meeting um, people in your community, I'll just say everybody, you know, the NBC community in general, but there was a few groups that he, he connected with specifically, brought Ryan a real sense of support. And I think that was part of his coping. You know, you had been asking about that, the connections that he made within the NBC community were very solid and your relationships change with other people in your life and not necessarily in a bad way, but the support from the community was like no other that he, he experienced. So he met Michael Covera, I think on the phone because Ryan and I first learned about Metaviver. I think this is how it all started. Well, actually what happened is in that brief three month window where we thought Ryan was finished after radiation and before the NBC diagnosis, we did the um, Coleman walk and um, all the cancer survivors, I think that's the term Coleman uses, were recognized. And Ryan just happened to get a big donor. And so we happened to be VIP people <laughs> at this event. There was no recognition of it, male NBC. They gave him... They were supposed to give him like a different color t-shirt, not that he didn't mind wearing pink, but it didn't distinguish Ryan at all. Anyway, he was he was in the sea of all the women. And there was a moment where he went up, they invited all the survivors up to the front of the stage. And he said, I stood in the crowd and all the women were hugging each other and nobody talked to me. Nobody looked me in the eye and he was crushed. So that's what I, the, the male component where he just thought, this is, I don't understand. I, I think he felt rejected in a way. And then he learned about Metaviver and we were preparing for the stampede, which ironically was last October. And I think, it, is it, is it Michael from New York? Is that, um, yeah. yes, I, I, we went with you. I don't know if you remember me, but um, we were in your group. Kirby, I remember, recalled hearing your name. I don't think I met you. Maybe you were there, but we met Michael and then Ryan um, became involved with Young NBC DC. I think Coleman then decided that they were more interested in male NBC and then they called upon him too. So th there was those three different. I, I remember you very well and I remember Ryan very well. We had we had some uh, few minutes to talk. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were in the group together uh, lobbying. You know, I was so very sorry to hear when he passed. And Michael Kavark and I had talked because I had many pictures of Ryan in the different congressional offices telling his story. So mm -hmm. it was just very sad. You, it, thank you for carrying on his cause and doing this today. It's, that's excellent. Yeah, certainly. And, and it's wonderful that Ryan was able to tell his story to members of Congress, because I think all the NBC stories need to be told. And in my own experience and speaking to members of Congress, they are surprised, even if they're very supportive of legislation that we're trying to get them to move along in the process and get passed already. They just are shocked. They go, oh, yeah, of course, we're going to support breast cancer, medicine, breast cancer legislation. Thank you so much for sharing that story, um, Katie. And it's very powerful to hear it from the perspective of the caregiver, too, the spouse, the partner, the family member. What are some of the key lessons that you learned through the process of being with Ryan, living with NBC? It is hard. It is really hard. It's complicated and complex and technical. 
this sounds so trite and I struggled with it a lot, but finding a way to have a positive or a, an outlook on life that has some, that recognizes the goodness and, and can enjoy the goodness is crucial because there are days, there are weeks, months, maybe even where it, that's harder to find and everything feels heavier. And really being honest with your care providers. It, we saw so many doctors and went to so many institutions. That's exhausting. It, you know, I really feel like we were on fast forward. It's interesting for me to talk to people who have been living with MBC or learn about them for years or to have been on treatment for longer than three or four months. We never had that. Every doctor's appointment was a total change of everything and and that's why I think Ryan was de novo and his original tumor markers changed. And we didn't find out about that. They went from ER positive, HER2 negative to triple negative until February of 2020. But I suspected it had it happened many months prior. And that's why literally every three months on the PET scan, there was a progression. So we were just, we constantly felt like we were chasing this like, you know, little carrot where everybody was saying, well, you're, you're actually very, you're very treatment naive. Look at this 25 list of chemos you haven't tried. And, and look, and, and we were like, I know we've only tried two or three things, but it's, it's major progression every time. And the bone, you can't biopsy well. And it wasn't until it went to his liver that the, you know, so New York, Boston, all over DC, different, it, it just, there wasn't a lot of time to rest and absorb and there wasn't many moments to actually regain a, a rhythm of normalcy. It was fast forward. It was pretty intense. Right. Uh, that it sounds like it was the roller coaster you never wanted to be on. And, and that happens. I think uh, that's really important to both balance the stories where you mention people are on treatments for longer than four months and they have that little runway. And then there are other stories like Ryan's, unfortunately, where the treatments aren't working and it's you're playing whack-a-mole, but the whack-a-mole is getting faster and faster and faster. And so I'm glad to hear, though I know it's exhausting, that you absolutely went and, and did second opinions and triple and quadruple opinions. Because for you, Kate, for you, Kate I think that's helpful because you know you did, and Ryan and you both did everything you could given the science as it is today, right? Yes, so. and, and I would absolutely tell anybody, even if you love your doctor, you have to go. You have to go because even if they say the same exact thing, the same plan times three, then you know. But you have to do it. And, and Ryan, the medications, this is another huge thing for MB, male NBC that it's just a little different. The medications that are offered are so physiologically altering. So Lupron was suggested the minute we found out that he was male MBC. And for anybody, I know that, that you all know what this is, but for anybody who's listening, isn't familiar with Lupron, it is a medication that tells your brain to stop producing testosterone. And for a man that is profound. And it was suggested like, maybe you should take two Advil. I'm not kidding the way it was suggested. <laughs> and it wasn't until we spoke 
to a male oncologist that they even stopped and really considered it. And then we went to Dana Farber and I don't know if you guys know Eric Weiner. Apparently he's famous. Yes, he's he's a great doctor. Yes, he's an amazing oncologist. And he spent several hours with us on a consult and he's like, I, there's, I wouldn't do that. What that's going to take from you is not worth what it's going to give you. But these are these things that are just like, just do this. So you really, you're the one who has to research everything. Because if you trust your providers who you do trust, you might take, and you know what? It would have been for naught because that's only important if Ryan had had a tumor marker that was estrogen positive, which lo and behold, he didn't. And we didn't know at that time because we couldn't test the bone. But that's the sort of thing that in our hearts, we were like, oh my goodness, do you, do you want to do this to yourself if you only have a few years to live? So that's an example of how complicated and complex and also nonchalant things can be presented. And, you know, he's like, oh, could there be sexual side effects? Maybe. That's what he was told. Maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's like a whole, that's a whole other episode that we could yes. do on, yes. you know, the impact to sexuality for for men and for women living with uh, breast cancer and the side effects and so on. Yeah. Uh, well, I love, I love that you were able to highlight those ex- very specific examples of why second and third and fourth opinions are really important. And when you think about the volume of changes within treatment standards right now, things are changing a lot. That even the best, most well-intentioned oncologist may not have the handle on what might be perfect for this particular patient. And so it is so incumbent upon us. The burden is on us, the patient so often to, to be our advocates. And, and that doctor, that oncologist may have just learned of something that your very well-meaning oncologist in your local center just may not have had exposure to it yet. Two months down the road, they may, but not today. And And that's that's what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And because uh, males, it was hard to find people who, had treated men. That phenomenon is, is I would say, pervasive for men who have MBC, that they're going to experience that. Yes, of course. Of course. Well, that's why we are having this episode too, is because it's so important to increase awareness and make sure people understand all of these factors a little bit better. I have another question for you, but what we'll do is we'll ask that one at the end. Uh, We do have a bunch of questions around mental health and so forth. And we'll ask that at the end, Katie. But Kirby, why don't you take over and talk a little bit to Michael, male breast cancer patient to male breast cancer patient. And Kirby, I know you have MBC, but if you could just go through some of those questions that we have, that would be great. And then we'll get back to you, Katie, and jump in any time, Katie, certainly. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you, uh, Kate, for uh, your very uh, candid Lisa, you just mentioned being MBC. I just want to clarify, that's not only uh, male breast cancer, uh, it is metastatic breast cancer. Right. And, it's double right. F, double yeah. F, BC, right. So, unfortunately, uh, I'm one of those rare uh, birds that I, I check off both boxes. And uh, originally, I was diagnosed in 2012 with stage two. And then uh, I guess Michael and I, Michael uh, Singer, uh, who is our guest here today. He and I actually spoke in 2012. I don't know if you remember that, Michael, or not. Sure. Uh, but he gave me a lot of insight, which I'm I'm happy to actually get to uh, learn more about you today, Michael. I know some things. But then in 2016, I had recurrence 
and it became metastatic and it was uh, it uh, had gone to both of my lungs as well as my bones and so I, I lead a very blessed life and I don't take any day for granted uh, Kate um, especially when I hear stories about Ryan and and other NBC patients I'm not sure why I'm still here but I'm thankful that I am and hopefully somewhere along the line I can make a difference as an advocate so I understand Ryan's uh, desire to want to do advocacy work you know we don't want anybody to face this or or have to go through this and of course Michael uh, Singer here is a is a wonderful advocate for uh, male breast cancer so without any further ado uh, Michael, I don't know exactly when you were diagnosed. Can you tell me? Sure. I'll uh, give you a little background. So, again, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. And, Kirby, just so you know, you are making a big difference in uh, breast cancer advocacy for men. So, everything you're doing is fantastic. And, again, I mentioned uh, I met Ryan at the Stage 4 Stampede in uh, Washington, D.C., and it, it, it was really shocking because he was very young and, you know, most of the guys I meet are my age and older, and meeting someone Ryan's age and stuff was just, it's upsetting. I was diagnosed in 2010 with uh, stage 2B ductal carcinoma in situ, and I had a mastectomy of my left breast. Considered early stage, but as most of you know, early stages have a 30% chance of reoccurrence. So it's it's always in the back of my mind. I'm coming up on my um, 10th anniversary. God bless them. I'm, I'm here, and I... I live each day, you know, respecting the fact that I'm still here. And unfortunately, so many of my brothers and sisters are passing from metastatic breast cancer. My first foray with metastatic breast cancer, Kirby, was my sister. My sister's older than me. And in 2008, she was diagnosed with stage four de novo. And unfortunately, my sister suffered terribly and didn't survive a, a year and she was gone. So two years later, when I was sitting in the doctor's office and they told me, Mr. Singer, I'm sorry to tell you, you have breast cancer. I mean, I was sitting there with my wife, Patty. And at first I looked at Patty and said, the doctor's got my sister's file in his hand. How could, how could I have breast cancer? I'm a man. He told me, no, Mr. Singer, I'm sorry, but men do get breast cancer. Kirby, the only thing in my mind at that point was I got less than a year to live because that was my only familiarity with, with sure. that, that breast cancer was my sister. It was, it was emotionally... You know, my head exploded because I, I got to get my affairs in order to leave my wife in, in good position if I'm not going to be around in a year. Most people that we talk to don't realize that men can get breast cancer. In reality, there are over 2,600 men diagnosed every year in the United States with breast cancer. But unfortunately, around 520 of those guys are going to die of metastatic breast cancer due to the latter stages of diagnosis because men were never taught the early warning signs to look for. And like Katie mentioned about Ryan, it was, you know, he just felt it and got it checked out, but he probably never heard of men getting breast cancer before that, I don't believe. You know, I didn't know about the early warning stages either. The last 10 years or, or less, I've been advocating for the Male Breast Cancer Coalition because I was looking for somebody who was like me that was a man with breast cancer. And there were few and far between because most guys are embarrassed to talk about having breast cancer because like myself, I felt like a freak when I first got diagnosed. I didn't know what was wrong with me, how I could have breast cancer. And uh, I didn't really know much about that field. But now uh, your family, uh, you said, mentioned your sister. Was there a generational history there with your family members? 
My mom and dad both had uh, different types of cancer. My mom had kidney and my dad had uh, prostate. My sister was the first one in my family that I had breast cancer. You know, shortly after my diagnosis, I went for genetic testing. The panel back in 2010 when I got diagnosed was probably much smaller than, you know, the panels on now. The assays, you know, can test for many more genes, but basically it was like a BRCA1 to BRCA2 test. I was negative for both of those. So I haven't gone back for any further genetic testing. I have no children. So, you know, most people don't realize either that a man can pass the BRCA gene on as well as a woman can. So yeah. that was that was my outcome, Kirby, was uh, negative with the uh, genetic test. Yeah, the genes, the DNA, that's the uh, big oversight, I think, with many people is that we don't realize that your sons are just as um, receptive uh, when it comes to DNA and those chromosomes and things that can produce or likely to produce breast cancer. And that's kind of one of the things that I kind of hound on doing advocacy work and saying that it's not gender biased. It is men or women. And it's not just your daughters you need to be concerned about, ladies, but you need to look at your sons too. Correct. You participated in Project Lead. I remember talking to you prior to me going to Project Lead. Right. And you've been a consumer reviewer for the uh, CDMRP, which is a great process. We recently had on the podcast uh, Dr. Gail Viday of the CDMRP BCP, and it was fascinating to learn how the review process works. What types of research did uh, did you review in your work with the uh, critical DOD research program? Do you recall? Well, I'd be uh, going back. It's been a couple of years since I did DOD, but it wasn't just male breast cancer. It was talking about you know ERPR positive cancer. We did one on metastatic cancer. There was only, I think, maybe 26, if I can recall, grants that I reviewed at the time. But uh, the experience of going through Project LEAD, as we mentioned, was phenomenal. I mean, people always ask me the worst part about the breast cancer, what's the best part about breast cancer. And I always tell them, the best part is the amazing people that I've met through this process. I mean, through uh, Project Lead through the DOD, you're constantly meeting other advocates, you're meeting doctors, and people are just amazing. Uh, they're just they're lifelong relationships. And the worst part is, is unfortunately losing so many, you know, friends on a on a regular basis. I mean, just this past week, two lady friends of mine, uh, April Doyle and Elaine Prejean, both metastatic patients, very, you know, to me, still young, and we lost both of them, but. Those are like the best and the worst part. But as for specific cases, uh, Kirby, I couldn't go back and tell you. And, and, and a lot of them are confidential to report sure. on. But I highly recommend for men and women the Project Lead application. And if you're lucky enough to do a couple of DOD grant reviews like I did, a fantastic opportunity. It really broadens your knowledge and you meet so many fantastic uh other advocates and uh, doctors. Let's take a short break here in our interview with Kate Keith and Michael Singer. I'm Natalia Green, co-host of RNBC Life. This October, we want to remember those who have died from metastatic breast cancer this past year. In our Just Gotta Share episode at the end of the month, we are creating space to remember them. Please send us names of the people you would like remembered. You can email us their names, or you can send us a short voice recording remembrance to rmbclife 
at sharecancersupport.org. Let's get back to our show on male metastatic breast cancer with Kate Keith and Michael Singer with my co-host Kirby Lewis. You have traveled extensively, I know, in the U.S. and abroad as a male breast cancer advocate. And is there a message that you consistently like to share with your audience or what have you? Sure, sure. Uh, traveling here in the U.S. and getting to travel in Europe and meeting other uh, male breast cancer thrivers and both men and women. You know, there's so many misconceptions, I think, about male breast cancer, what that men can get breast cancer and about the early warning signs. So I would tell other people, number one, don't be embarrassed like I was. I was foolish in the beginning. That first year, I asked my wife not to tell anybody I had breast cancer because it was embarrassing. It just, I, again, I felt like a freak. You know, it took until I saw a young man on a TV show in New York that had a show called The Katie Couric Show. And she had a young male breast cancer patient named Brett Miller on with a, a doctor from Sloan Kettering and also Richard Roundtree, who for me growing up was, uh, you know, African-American uh, superstar. He was he was cool. He was he was in a show called Shaft. So when I saw Richard Roundtree and Brett Miller up on stage talking about male breast cancer, I said, I'm not alone. I'm not the freak I, I thought I was. So my message is don't be embarrassed if you feel something. Tell your significant other, go to the doctor and tell them what's going on. Don't try to hide it and don't be embarrassed because the longer you wait, plus the, the worse it could get. And unfortunately, if it's left unattended, it'll spread and become metastatic. And, and you know, every day, Kirby, you and, and the other metastatic guys, you, you, you're fighting for your lives, whether it's drugs every day or missing doctor's appointments and making doctor's appointments. It's there every day. You can never really walk away and, and forget about it. So. The advocacy work, like you mentioned, that, that Richard Roundtree and, and, and Brett Miller, who happens to be uh, one of the uh, co-founding members of the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, I think that, that stepping forward and, and making your voice heard is probably one of the greatest gifts that we can give as breast cancer thrivers or survivors or patients or however you want to put it. I, I mean, I, I, to me, I think that's just invaluable. I'm thankful that you're able to do that and able to s share that message around the world. Has uh, reception been a little different in, in your travels? I would say that over the last couple of years, it's changed dramatically because in the beginning, nobody was talking about it. Nobody had heard about male breast cancer. And, you know, as time goes on, as I advocate and go to different things like San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium or ASCO, more and more people are hearing about it. As you know, a male breast cancer coalition, we usually have a booth at these places and, you know, spreading the word. So it's becoming more and more receptive, especially in Europe. But in Europe, again, the couple of guys I talked to were very embarrassed about coming forward with it. And, you know, when I went to schedule interviews, some people were reluctant and said, you know what, I don't, I don't think I want to go public and and talk about it. I had it, uh, had surgery, it's over with. And, you know, fortunately for them, they might not have to be on a chemo or, or radiation treatment that they're just on uh, tamoxifen or something like that. And they don't want to talk about it or something. But as time progresses, we've been more receptive about people talking about male breast cancer. You know, you learn things all the time doing advocacy work. And I just think it's so valuable. So, I, I mean, Michael, I just appreciate you being here today and you, Kate, 
I, I love learning new things. I always tell everybody that uh, one of the greatest gifts we're given outside of life is our ability to share information. So I think that as humans, we like to share our love, our spirituality, and our experiences. And uh, I appreciate so much you two doing that. Lisa? Yeah, thank you. Um, Kate, back to you, I think. Some people say that learning to cope mentally with this diagnosis is as important as physical aspects of the diagnosis. Can you give your perspective on what the most difficult issues were mentally for you and Ryan? And it's kind of a huge question because it's kind of, you could always say everything. Was there ways that you actually, while you were going through his treatment, how you and Ryan were able to cope a little bit better? Yeah. Um, you know, I think Michael, what you were saying about um, your experience with being ashamed that you had breast cancer and that as being a barrier to discuss your experience. And then as you became more comfortable, that that experience evolved for you. That's a great illustration of these insidious parts of us. If you were academically to look at a case study of yourself in a third party and read like, oh, Ryan's going to get breast cancer. And I don't know if I would have been in tuned with some of these really complicated, paradoxical experiences. And Michael, I don't know if, if, if that experience would fall into this category for you, but yeah, you feel all these emotions get evoked that you don't expect to come, that come out of the blue. Shame, anger, complete loss of control, existential questions about dying and living. All of this is stirred into the pot. And so for Ryan and I, kind of working through some of the, the murky mud, being more honest with each other, being more honest with ourselves, getting in touch with what really matters in life and learning to recognize what is BS and being able to walk away and um, letting each other within our marriage have the room to do that. Sometimes we did it together. Sometimes we needed to do it separately. But you know, that's one of those answers that only an individual knows the right path for them. But those are all the the obstacles and the challenges that every person faces on that path. Asking for help is hard. We found it hard. I found it hard. Some things that are disguised as help are more complicated. <laughs> so really getting to know yourself and that in itself is, is one of life's greatest journeys. I feel like Ryan and I were on fast forward. We just lived the, the last two years. We went from 41 to 90. So and I held him in my arms at home and managed his pain control while he died. It's been quite a, it's been quite an experience. It's hard to articulate one or two, you know, it's just more of, I guess, going back to what I said, it's the journey, the individual journey through life and what resonates with you as being true and real. All of the, the issues you talked about psychologically, they ran the gamut. I, I, you know, had them all. And the drugs that you take, even though not chemo, radiation, you're taking tamoxifen, for example, that stuff just plays with your psyche. You get emotional roller coaster, just physical problems. Having having someone like Patty there with me through everything, I mean, I I can't put myself in your shoes having to go through you know something like that with Ryan. I'm 
hope that Patty and I never have to, to deal with that. I think actually, Michael, what, what I think, Kate, you said so beautifully. I think that with NBC or, you know, any terminal diagnosis, it's like life is accelerated. It's like life is on steroids. And all of a sudden, two years, as you said so beautifully, it went, you went from 41 to 90. And I think that is incredibly hard to do, but it's obvious that you've been able to at least reflect on how hard it was. And I think that's part of it too, is acknowledging that, yes, it's really hard. And there's really not much more you can glean from that, but you, you did say that so well. And I totally agree, Michael, that having caregiver support is critical. And I think then people who perhaps don't have a spouse or a partner, close family members, I've certainly witnessed people being able to find support in other ways. And that's super important within our community. And that's why sometimes you can find these connections with being in the worst club with the best people that you have to find your support. And Kate, I think it's so right that you have to learn how to ask for help because it's not an easy thing to do. And sometimes the thing you have to learn to do pretty quickly. We'll get back to, well, here, I think we'll stay in this line of of thinking for a moment. Mental health during these times of the pandemic, and Kate, you're also managing homeschooling during all of this. I can't even imagine. It's super tough uh, with three kids. And, you know, the pandemic is not abating. That's why I'm not indoors right now. (laughs) It's like because the town hall is closed to everybody. So, you know, it's a very difficult time. So, Michael, maybe I can ask you first, how do you take care of your physical and mental well-being during these times? What sort of self-care tips would you like to offer? Well, these are definitely uh, difficult times with the COVID and, and doctor's appointments extended into the future or canceled altogether. Mm-hmm. They're very, very difficult now, just psychologically, you know, what you can do, what you can't do, what you're afraid to do right now has been challenging to say the least. We have a men's support group and we call in the third Thursday of every month and we talk about the issues that we're going through during COVID especially, but it's an opportunity for men to call in with any kind of issue, complaint, uh, problem that they want to talk about. I mean, I'm 60 years old now and, and I've never experienced anything in my life like this, walking around with masks, watching you in the park with the mask, not being allowed to go into places without a mask. It's definitely reduced what we can do as advocates. I haven't been to a health fair or to uh, a hospital to talk about male breast cancer since COVID started. So it's definitely hampering our ability. So things like this Zoom meeting are the only way to really to deal with it. Phone calls, you know, talking to Kirby, and participating in things like this is the only way I see right now to cope with it. Because without it, I think we'd be going more crazy than we're going right now. It's unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. How about how about you, Kate? How are you taking care of your mental health right now? Um, well, I, I do have a lot of family and very close friends who we are being careful and appropriate and safe, but I, I'm not completely isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think making safe, appropriate um, decisions to be near people has been critical. I have to tell you, it's really, I, I don't, life is so hard. I, mean, I, I, I don't want that to be my, 
like mantra of this um, of this talk. But we are, as Michael just said, this is unprecedented challenge. And for me, so Ryan had his uh, second central port put in three days before school shut down. It completely synchronized his his death synchronized with COVID. And then the immediate grieving period after COVID has, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm in this very, I'm almost dizzy from how, how odd and surreal life is right now. And my mental health is grounded by nature, my family, knowing that what Ryan and I had was absolutely authentic and true. And um, that is sprinkled with a lot of tears. And I feel like I'm still very raw and new in, in this phase. There's the leading up to somebody dying and then there's the after of somebody dying and, and all of that just happened to me. So waking up every day feels like a major triumph and getting through the day is a victory. I'm, I have limited access. I can't go to the gym. I have been not been without my children 24 seven for six months. I've, I've, I've so there's all of these things that we would built in as self-care and mental health. I, um, I, I have talked to a therapist on a phone and it's just not the same, but you kind of go inward and you get connect to that most deep part of yourself that finds some peace and look at what your resources are. And for me, it's people and nature. I'm <laughs> trying to get as much of that as I can. So thank you, Kate, for sharing that. What would be the key things that you would like to tell people to know about male breast cancer? So is like, have things changed? It's a two-part question. Have things changed in awareness? And what are the really key points that you really need people to understand and know? Kate, you can go first or Michael, it's up to you, either one of you, whoever wants to go first. Go ahead, Kate. Okay. Um, well, absolutely. In my world, things have changed significantly because in late 2017, nobody I knew had male breast cancer and our friends and family on this journey in our locality have all now learned about it. They have listened to Ryan and he learned so much. He taught me so much. I just... I didn't have the wherewithal to do the reading and the studying and, and, and he, he was able to go deep to that. Um, I watched our local Komen go from that experience that I told you about to having Ryan on a panel to talk about male NBC. I think that was because of Ryan actually, and him sharing like, Hey, this is what happened. Are you interested in expanding your, your horizon on this and topic and they opened him they welcomed him with open arms so i think his oncologists have all been more aware also i i hate for this to have to be his legacy in a way it's not the only thing that he was you know it's actually a very small part of ryan's story it it is a part of his story that i think people will remember very well because he was so young you can't ever take that away. You can't ever take that impression away. Thank you, Kate. For me, I, I think what people need to realize is 
Breast cancer is not pink. The whole pink thing is a fallacy. We need to change the colors as, you know, we as the Male Breast Cancer Coalition say, we're putting a splash of blue into a sea of pink because it's it's not pink for us. Lots of men and women are turned off by the whole pink culture. The balloons, the, the pom-poms, it's, it's, it's got to change. But it's definitely changed over the years. I can remember being diagnosed back in 2010. Coleman had nothing on their website. American Cancer Society had nothing on their website. Now you can go on the, to any of the major cancer websites and they have a whole thing on male breast cancer, signs, symptoms, treatments. It's definitely changed. I think as Katie mentioned before, they, they wouldn't look Ryan in the eye or they turn the, their backs to him. In the beginning, I, I'd have to say that it was a hard, hard circle to to crack to get in there as being the only man in the room. When I was at Project Lead, it was, you know, me and 50 women. So, yeah, some women, you know, like happened to Ryan. They didn't really want to deal with me, but then others were so warm and welcoming. And, you know, as you go to the meetings or health fairs, whatever, you start seeing the same people, everybody starts warming up. You, you start to really become one big family. And and I have to say the, the women over the years have really embraced uh, me as one of the few males and Kirby also who attend a lot of the, the conferences and, and Zoom meetings and stuff. But there's there's so many barriers to overcome. When I'm at a, a conference like San Antonio, a lot of people from, from Europe and the Far East and stuff, they come in, they're like, I've heard about male breast cancer, but I've never met someone with male breast cancer. So, you know, there's usually a couple of us guys there. And we have a lot of literature we hand out. We have self-breast exam cards that we hand out, and they're in uh, numerous languages. So we have a lot of people from all over the world, and we're trying to give them self-breast exam cards in their language so that they can share it with their uh, different groups and men to learn about them getting breast cancer. And also the doctors. I had doctors coming up to me, you know, give you that look like, hmm, male breast cancer. I've heard about it, but have never experienced it. They need to broaden their horizons and incorporate the treatment of male breast cancer or the knowledge that, you know, men get breast cancer. We're, we're being treated the same way you treat women, whether it's the surgeries or the drugs. It's it's all the same. Research needs to increase in male breast cancer. Um, the funding has to be there for male breast cancer, as well as metastatic breast cancer. Let's put it this way. Stage four needs more. There's definitely got to be more research for for metastatic breast cancer. But I, but I am seeing the tides turn, Lisa. It's definitely becoming talked about more and more, more people are becoming aware. Yeah, Michael, uh, <clears throat> I know one of the early on conferences that I attended, I was actually approached by a, a lady and she said, you need to leave, you don't belong here. Uh, and also then going back to the doctor situation, my first doctor that I, I said, I think it's breast cancer. And he said, oh no, men don't get breast cancer. Uh, he's not my doctor anymore. The, those are barriers that we've had to navigate around. Or, and I do think it's improved. And again, I think it's incumbent upon people like you and Kate that are willing to step up here and be this voice, be heard. Kate, I, I just, my heart just goes out to you and your family so much. I think inevitably when you're uh, metastatic, I think you kind of wonder, well, where do I fall in this this process. When, when will my number uh, be the next one called? So this is the point in our recording where the audio was completely compromised by multiple outside voices and noises. Again, our apologies for this. 
I thank Kirby Lewis for being such a trooper on his inaugural co-hosting gig here at RNBC Life. Thank you to Michael Singer for being an early stage advocate, not just for male breast cancer, but for everyone facing NBC. I always say there's a special place of honor for early stage advocates who work hard to elevate the issues of metastatic breast cancer. And Kate, it was such a privilege to hear more about Ryan, even while we know this is just a fraction of what Ryan was all about. I look forward to hearing more about Ryan's life later this month when we remember people who've died from NBC. Kate, thank you so much for being honest and forthright with Ryan's experience and your own experience. Ryan sounds like the most incredible man, and we wish you and your children much peace, love, and comfort during this time. You are the true personification of grace, and it has been such an honor to speak with you. Special thanks also goes out to Jim Cremens, who has stepped in to help me with our podcast editing production. This episode was not usual in any way, and he was able to work some special magic. Jim is also part of this NBC club that no one wants to be part of. His wife, Laura, was diagnosed with NBC this year, and he's already helping our team in a significant way. And now here's a message from Share Cancer Support. This is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Support and Education at SHARE and the Chair of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. For 35 years, SHARE has offered support groups for women living with MBC. Today we offer 18 metastatic breast cancer support groups each month, facilitated by peer volunteers. That is, women living with MBC just like you. There's a group for young women, a group for black people, a group for newly diagnosed people, and several groups for those living with MBC for two or more years. If you're not a group person, call our TalkMets helpline, a helpline dedicated to those living with MBC. When you call the helpline, a woman living with MBC will answer the phone on the other end. Collectively, these women, these volunteers have so much information, experience, and compassion. Give them a call or attend a group. We're here to help. Visit sharecancersupport.org or call the TalkMets helpline, 844-ASK-SHARE. That's 844-275-7427. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly collaborative and expanding team of Jersey Baker, Pam Detterer, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Kirby Lewis, Sheila McGlone, Shante Randall, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Interning with us are Angelica Alberstadt, Elena Golub, and Amy Tedeschi. To Jake Amarelli for his social media consulting. And you can find more episodes of our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and look for a new episode every Monday and submit your Just Gotta Share moments. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.